Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness, are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we will be completing the third part of our series of the audio portion of the live presentations, Real Talk on Men's Health. In this episode, we have two presenters. Our first presenter, Dr. Yao Naimi, will be talking about men's cancers, prostate and testicular. He will be speaking about early detection of both prostate and testicular cancer. Our second presenter, is Dr. Josh Thaler. He will be briefly addressing metabolic syndrome and diabetes, but the majority of his presentation will be about obesity and the upcoming and updated issues of the current medications. I'm certain that you all have questions about those. These are wonderful presentations, so please stay tuned. If you haven't heard the two prior episodes with two presenters each, from Real Talk on Men's Health. Please review our December episode and January episodes. Well, we're going to move on now to really two important male cancers, prostate and testicular. Dr. Nyami is an assistant professor, Department of Urology, UW School of Medicine, and the Deputy Associate Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. We'll be looking at these two important cancers, both prostate and testes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, This is always a pleasure to give these kinds of talks. And so I'll start by saying thank you to Rich for the invitation. Rich had asked me to give a talk on these two topics, and uh, it's a pretty comprehensive area, obviously. But what I'm really going to focus on is early detection, because I think out of the many cancers that I treat in my practice, these are two where we can detect cancers early and have really positive outcomes. So I'll start with my disclosures. These are just funding disclosures. And thankfully, Dr. Fuller has given us a nice primer on, on male anatomy. And I always show the slide in community settings because I think they're, it's important to remember what the actual location and function of these organs are. The prostate you see here highlighted in this bigger bubble sits right below the, the bladder. The urethra, the male urethra passes through it. And from a function standpoint, it's really the main producer of semen. So when a man has an ejaculate, the liquid component of what's coming out is produced by the prostate and the seminal vesicle, which is a little organ that sits right behind it. And it produces a wide range of proteins, one of which is PSA, which helps with sperm motility. 
The testicles, which are in the scrotum, produce actually the sperm themselves. They travel from the scrotum into the body, and then through the pelvis, it travels down into the prostate where it enters the male urethra. And it also produces a hormone, testosterone, which we heard about from uh, Dr. Heeman. So two organs, two very different functions, all interconnected, both of which can get cancer. And I'm going to spend some time talking mostly about prostate cancer, and then I'll end with a few slides about testicular cancer and really a call to action that's going to be focused around normalizing the discussion about what normal testicles feel like and why men should at least do a self-examination once a month. So I'll get into details there. From a cancer statistic standpoint, it's important to know that prostate cancer is a very common cancer and it's on the rise. So we're estimated to have almost 290,000 new cases of prostate cancer this year. It's the number one cause of a cancer diagnosis in the United States. It's the second leading cause of a cancer-related death in the U.S. If you look at the bottom of the slide, testicular cancer accounts for about 1% of cancer. So it's a, it's a more rare cancer, but you can see that the cancer deaths are quite low. And so that'll be part of the messaging is that both of these cancers are highly treatable and finding them early can reduce the morbidity of the treatments that we have to offer and certainly increases the chance of survival when diagnosed. If you look over time, you can see that prostate cancer incidence skyrockets. That's with the introduction of PSA testing. So all of a sudden we have a test that allows us to detect cancers early and we find a lot of the cancers are out in the population. You can see that this curve starts to go down, right? Because we were starting to find all these cancers that we wouldn't have found unless people had symptoms. What's interesting is we've had quite a bit of policy changes around PSA testing over the last decade. And we're seeing that cancer rates are going back up for the first time in quite some time. And we don't have a great explanation for this because a lot of these cancers that are going up are also stage four cancers, incurable cancers. And so there's a question about whether this is truly due to screening, which is we've done some work that suggests that that's part of the case. But there's also this idea that maybe we have better tests to detect stage four cancers like PET scans and more access to CT scans and other things. If you look at death over time, I've put an arrow at prostate cancer death over time. Similar to that increased number of new cases that were out in the community, we saw an increase in death for prostate cancer, which really is attributed to the fact that we were detecting more cancers. So now we had a diagnosis that we could more often tie to cancer death. However, what we see is that after having a 50% decrease in prostate cancer death over three decades, we have the stall that's occurred, right? So for the first time over the last you know, 30 years or so, we have had prostate cancer death sort of plateau and not decrease any further. So why am I sharing all of this? It's really to highlight that you know, these cancers do impact life, not just in survival, but in morbidity. Testicular cancer is one of the top five leading causes of cancer death for males in their 20s and 40s. And we see that prostate cancer is the second leading cause of death, any cancer, regardless of age. Certainly more significant in the later decades of life. So I'm going to transition over this overview of like what we call the epidemiology or the statistics of prostate and testicular cancer and fast forward into the story of early detection, right? Because I think for a lot of men in present day, if they go to their primary care doctor and they ask for a PSA test, it might be a little bit more of a negotiation than, than you would have had 
if you presented to your doctor in the 90s. In fact, if you presented to your doctor in the 90s, it probably was no negotiation. They just added it to the panel of tests that you would get at the advice of your cardiologist. You'd probably get your lipid panel. You'd get, you know, some kidney function tests and you'd get a PSA. And now, you know, it's not uncommon for me to hear from from patients of mine who I treat for prostate cancer, sort of what the uh, journey was to get a test. So let's start with some really basic fundamental statistics. One in eight men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. And if you're of a high-risk group, so if you have a family history of prostate cancer, breast, ovarian, colon cancer, if you're of African ancestry, that's actually closer to a one in six lifetime risk. And so the concept of prostate cancer screening is to, we have a test, a blood test that if it's high may help us reduce your chance of dying from prostate cancer. It does so by about 20%. And also to not be overlooked, the treatment that we have for stage four cancer can, can have quite a bit of side effects. And so if we can avoid a diagnosis of stage four cancer, that also has its benefit. The harms we can't ignore either, right? So this is balancing act that we're doing. Uh, we can find cancers that will never affect someone in their natural life, right? That's what we call overdetection. I'll show a slide for that. We certainly, as urologists, have been guilty of overtreating folks. There was a time where anyone who had a cancer diagnosis sort of immediately got a treatment. Um, that was a, and we, I think we've evolved as a specialty in how we do this. Certainly we have a lot of false positive tests in the form of elevated PSAs that make us suspicious that end up being maybe from your enlarged prostate, which we heard from Dr. Fuller. And our biopsy itself has complications that can't be overlooked. So if we're thinking about early detection, it really is this time from development of a cancer to diagnosis, right? And in there, you may have symptoms, not very common if we're really relying on PSA, but it's this idea that around this period of time from the development of a cancer to diagnosis that we may intervene early and find it. And so what are some important concepts to think about? Well, this is like a highly technical graph, right? You have onset of preclinical disease and disease without greening, et cetera. But I, you know, basically you have these two time points, right? You have the onset of cancer, hypothetically. You have the possibility of dying of natural causes. And you have the possibility of dying from prostate cancer. And if we detect your cancer with screening in a time period where there was no probability that you would have died from prostate cancer and you would have died of natural causes or some other health condition, that would be an overdetected cancer. And the reality of screening is that we test a lot of people to save a very small fraction of individuals. So when we think about that benefit to harm ratio, we really have to think about the risk of overdetection and false positives. And so what is the history of the controversy? Well, does PSA testing reduce prostate cancer death? I mean, that's really the big question. We've had two trials that showed, have looked into this information to try and help us understand this. One was done in, in, uh, in the U.S. and the other was done in Europe. I hate to admit the European study is better. Um, they beat us in this category, and I'll kind of explain why. If you look at the graph here, the black line is those who received the PSA test. The PSA test was better. It would be lower than the um, red line of people who are supposed to be controls, meaning they had no PSA test, and it showed no benefit. And this really drove the recommendations that we saw. You see in the European study here, this blue line shows that the number of people who died from prostate cancer is lower, right? So the European study shows a 20% decrease in death. 
So why the discrepancy? Well, I'll get into that. But the U.S. trial drove recommendations against screening. So this is kind of like your report card. We all want an A. C's and D's are bad, right? So that's basically the task force saying they don't believe in it. And in 2008, the task force came out and gave PSA testing a D recommendation. This is why you may have difficulty negotiating around the benefit of testing with your primary care doctor. And that was all driven by the U.S. trial. They gave the D recommendation for people over the age of 70, and then they gave it for those at any age. And then that was reversed in 2018 to a grade C, which is slightly better, but that's really still based off of having that conversation with your doctor. This chart is really busy, but one of my close friends and colleagues at Cornell did this study while he was in training, and it really was one of the first things to help change the minds of the task force around PSA testing. And what he did is he went back at the original, looked at the original screening trial and asked the question, well, how many people had a PSA test? And if you look at these charts, this is percentages on the left side. Uh, and this is the control arm. So these are people that were not supposed to have any PSA test, right? About 70% of them had a test before they entered the study, and almost 90% of them had a test at some point while on the study, right? So we never really got the opportunity in the U.S. to compare PSA testing to no testing. We had a lot of testing to slightly less than a lot of testing, and that's part of the reason why we have this negative result. And we subsequently have gone back and reevaluated the trials using these really fancy computer models. And we show the same benefit when we account for that amount of testing, what we call contamination in the control arm. And what's really unique about PSA uh, screening, because it really is based off of this concept of lead time, like how early we detect it in its natural history of the cancer. So there is a accrual of benefit over time. There's a lot of screening studies that say, well, if you get. Whatever we see at 10 years, that's what you get. But when we model it, it seems like what you get at 10 years, if you're really young and healthy when you start screening, is not as good as what you get at 16 years and what we estimated at 25 years in the study that was published in the New England Journal. So who should have testing? If you're 55 to 70 and of average risk, meaning no strong family history, not of African ancestry, and you're healthy, you should get a PSA test probably every other year. If you're in a high-risk population, you should start screening probably around age 40 or 45. And I think if your numbers are low, you got to be able to stop screening because the benefit's only among those who have higher PSAs. These are the risk criteria. We've heard a lot about age, family history. Really important to know your family history of cancer in general. I think our Fred Hutch team has really led the nation in understanding that it's not just your prostate cancer risk, but it's breast cancer, it's ovarian cancer, it's colon cancer, it's pancreatic cancer. Knowing all those things and normalizing conversations of that can save lives, certainly can help you make decisions about how you screen and, and when to screen. And for those who might be snapping pictures, these are sort of the current best available guidelines on PSA testing. And then finally, what is an abnormal PSA test? I'll say the simple answer is if I ask Dr. Fuller and Dr. Heeman, who are board certified practicing urologists, they might give me different answers. So this is what I use based off the clinical trials. And I think if you're in this range, you really should be thinking about what, should I have a biopsy or should I have more testing? More testing can be in the form of additional, what we call reflexive tests. So we have urine-based and blood-based testing that we can do and offer 
MRI is my favorite second line test that gives us additional information that can really help us decide. But don't wait till it gets above 10, okay? Um, that is a high PSA. So really quickly, I'm gonna shift gears from prostate cancer to testicular cancer. Self-examination, really important. And this is sort of a resource I found online that shows how to do it. Basically, all men should get familiar with how their testicle feel and really try to keep track of whether there are changes. A lot of the things you may feel will probably be benign and, and that's great. But if you feel a hard lump, I think that's an indication to seek medical care. And I, you know, this is something that I hope gets not normalized just in this room, but among younger populations, right? I can say again, my colleagues have seen young individuals who have a bad testicular problem, like it's twisted on itself, not mention anything to anyone because we don't normalize the fact that, you know, you should be paying attention to this and it's okay to talk about. And certainly around testicular cancer, if we can diagnose it when it's only in the testicle, our treatments can only be surgical removal and not chemotherapy, radiation, and some of the other things that carry more serious side effects, even though they're effective, we would rather find it in that stage one or that early stage. So these are the risk factors or the higher risk populations. This is a disease that occurs in the 20s and 30s, uh, most uh, history of undescended testicle. Family history, you know, we haven't found a lot of genetic association with testicular cancer, but I certainly have seen patients in my practice who carry a family history. So again, normalizing that discussion around cancer history in the family um, can be helpful. One in 250 people will be diagnosed in their lifetime. So again, not as common as prostate cancer, but the number of individuals who die from testicular cancer is one in 5,000. So again, highlighting the fact that this is a curable cancer and detection is really helpful. So I can't emphasize this enough. Seems like a really low, we talk about sort of the cost of doing early detection and intervening. This is a really cheap test to do, you know, once a month in the shower to check the testicles and make sure there's nothing abnormal. And if you find something that's concerning to, you know, see your primary care doctor, that can be escalated to a urologist. You know, firm lumps can be examined, you know, with the ultrasound, which is cheap and fairly non-invasive, readily available. And, you know, outcomes can be really good when, when caught early. So... From this standpoint, I really do think it's important to destigmatize conversations about testicles and genitalia. And with that, I don't have a lot else to add other than thank you. These opportunities to be in community and share a little bit of expertise we have is always really special. And Rich, thank you for entrusting me with these important topics tonight. Last, I'll mention colorectal cancer screening, which is recommended to begin at age 45 if you're at average risk. But individuals who have a family history of colorectal cancer polyps should begin at 40 or 10 years earlier than the youngest case in the immediate family. Individuals who are black, Native American, or Alaskan Native adults carry a higher risk, and you ought to have a conversation with your physician about starting screening earlier. So batting cleanup. We now will conclude with a review of the metabolic syndrome, or prediabetes, diabetes and obesity, and updates in the management and medications. And of course, all of us are wondering, what about those weight loss drugs? And so to elucidate all about that, Dr. Josh Thaler will present. Dr. Thaler is an associate professor, Division of Metabolism, Endocrinology, and Nutrition 
the UW School of Medicine, UW Medicine Diabetes Institute. Just a little bit about me. I work at the University of Washington, um, and I both do research and see patients, although this is going to be a clinical talk, but I actually just saw patients today at my clinic at Harborview, where I see both endocrinology and weight patients. So I'm, this is the final hurrah. I'm the caboose. I was asked to talk about a very little topic of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and obesity, talking about management and medications. Each one of those could be an hour long. I work on obesity, and so that's the area that I'm going to focus on, and there's a lot of exciting movement in that space, so I think it's worth talking about. I will mention a couple things on metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So the World Health Organization defines obesity as a disease characterized by an abnormal or excessive amount of fat that presents a risk to health, and that's a key piece that I'll talk about in a second. And you've heard a lot about preventive things. And this is going to be a little bit of a different side, not to say that I believe only in medicines, but that that's what I was asked to talk about. So that's what I'll talk about. But just so that we have definitions, body mass index, BMI is probably familiar to everyone, a way to kind of look at weight and normalize that to size so that you can kind of compare. And BMI, as you may know, is a bit of a controversial measure. It's both useful in the sense that it's easy to obtain in a clinic or in a study. And so we learn a lot from it. We define overweight as over BMI over 25 and obese as a BMI over 30, but it's also an imperfect measure. And here's just one example of that. So this is just a display from men subgroup of a large epidemiologic study, a displaying body mass index on the x-axis versus actual fat, body fat percent, which is what you really care about. And you can see that there's a big spray, right? So there is a relationship, but there's a lot of people that fall off the line, either that the body mass index makes them seem like they have a higher fat mass than they actually do. So for example, in bodybuilders, we'll have very high BMI, but actually have low fat mass and people for the opposite where their BMI looks low, but they actually have high fat mass. And that's common, for example, in South Asians one of the reasons they have higher cardiovascular risk. And it's also a predictive measure in some senses of health risk, both good and bad. So for example, with diabetes, it correlates quite tightly, both in men and women. Higher BMI tends to lead to higher rates of diabetes. But the relationship with mortality, the ultimate outcome, is actually quite controversial. And you can see that there's at that higher line, you know, there are models that suggest that there's a linear relationship. The higher BMI, or presumably more obese, the worse mortality is. But there's also, you see on that lower model, a kind of U-shaped curve where it actually looks like being overweight or even obese might actually be protective. And that's quite controversial. But it tells you that BMI is not that helpful a measure in a lot of ways. But it's what we use. And, and so, unfortunately, we've talked a lot about prevention here, and I'm about to show you kind of depressing statistics that we're not doing very well with prevention. And so, as you, as you know, obesity has increased, and it's really kind of a modern disease in the sense that here is the first year that we had full data for all the states from 1995. The CDC takes a poll of folks, and you can see that the rates were at most 20% in a state, really less than that. 
And normally I flash through all these slides and you make some kind of political comment because it goes from blue to red. But putting that all aside, um, I, I'm, for the purpose of time, I'll just jump to last year's data. And what you can see is you've gone from 10 to 20% to literally 30 to 40% in almost every place except Washington, D.C. And Colorado always seems to be a bit of a holdout as well. So it's really become more common to have obesity or overweight than to be lean. So two thirds of the populace essentially falls into those categories. So going back to this definition, I wanna add one layer to that. We in the endocrinology community and the scientific community view it as a disease. And one of the reasons is that it's actually got a very large genetic component. Here you can see just sort of a very crude and obvious way to see this with identical twins who share all their DNA versus fraternal twins who share half, just like any sibling. And you can see that the identical twins look identical, both in, in probably in their faces, but definitely in their body shape, it turns out in their fat mass as well. And based on this and many other studies, we think that obesity is up to 50% heritable. So there's a large genetic component, but clearly that's being acted upon in the environment that makes susceptible people become obese. Whereas if you were in a non-obesogenic or non-obese promoting environment, that wouldn't happen. So it's an inherited disease in some senses that is characterized by those things. But why do we treat it? So that's that risk to health part. So there's the societal view, which is maybe the cosmetic view that I, I just want to look better in my outfit. And then there's the medical view that sometimes maybe we become a bit overzealous as doctors. So this is you may not be able to read that. So basically a, a patient comes in and her arm has fallen off and the doctor says, well, we should definitely put you on a diet, which obviously is not gonna help her arm. So sometimes doctors get a bit myopic about what they wanna treat and, and, and that leads to weight stigma and a lot of other negative things. But there are definitely cases where we do wanna address obesity. And one of those is, here's my one slide for metabolic syndrome, is the situation metabolic syndrome, which is sort of a collection of risk factors, none of which kind of reach the level of a disease themselves. But if you have multiple, it's considered a problem. And so you can see that that involves things like uh, the numbers on the left are the actual cutoffs. So waist circumference is the blue is men and pink is women. Sorry, but that's just what I picked. So greater than 40 inches waist circumference in men, greater than 35 in women etc., higher triglycerides, lower HDL, higher blood pressure, and higher fasting glucose, but none that actually call you diabetic or hypertensive, but you have a bunch of these. And why does that matter? We know that that increases the risk of heart disease or stroke. And we know that if you lose weight, that is the most effective way to treat this. So that's one of the reasons, but really there's lots of reasons where even modest weight loss, so five to 15%, and that's an important number to remember because you'll see that that's what the medications achieve, can improve weight. Those are supposed to be down, those are supposed to be check boxes, those little things on the right, that basically every single one of those, the benefit increases with more weight loss. This also extends to cancers that aren't on this list, as well as um, mental health diseases, we don't know entirely whether weight loss is effective, but definitely obesity is associated with those conditions. So why is it so difficult? We all know it's difficult. And the reason is that the body contains a very strong thermostat that regulates this primarily in the brain. And I'll go into a little bit of detail. Essentially that when you lose weight, there are systems in place that force it back. 
And when you gain weight, there are systems in place to actually push it back, which is a little bit counterintuitive given that there is obesity. And some argue that the downward direction is protected more, that the system fights that more because it thinks you're starving to death, whereas in the upward direction, it's not as fought. But you can really demonstrate that this is present even in obese folks, that they maintain their weight stably over long periods of time. So what exactly is going on? So you can imagine that it's actually fat mass and not weight itself that's defended. And the reason that is, is because fat secretes proteins and signals that talk to the thermostat in the brain and tell it what's going on. And so when it increases these signals, which don't matter which ones they are, tell the brain to do something about it. And the brain sends, does two things that it can regulate, among others, which is to raise the burn rate, the thermogenesis or the energy expenditure, how much you burn your metabolism and lower your appetite to try to bring fat mass back down. And the opposite occurs when you lose weight, your appetite goes up, you get hungry, and your system slows down to try to hang on to the weight so that it prevents it. And the problem is, and this system works just fine, but now you put on this obesogenic environment where there's readily available foods that tend to promote weight gain, there's stressors, there's poor sleep, sedentary jobs, etc., low exercise. All of those things tend to push up that set point, that fat mass set point in ways that we don't really understand. That's the real holy grail of the research side is to try to figure out how that happens. We don't entirely understand that, but it does occur. And, and I like this cartoon because it kind of, I just found this sort of randomly, but it kind of illustrates what happens in the brain, right? That the brain says that 160 pounds is like the new 135. It basically re-regulates where it's thinking what normal is. So how do we treat it? Oh, there's a delay. Okay. So I'm going to briefly talk about diets. You've heard about the Mediterranean diet and the heart healthy diet. And I want to point out that when I'm talking about diets in this context, I'm strictly talking about it for weight loss, not for health. So I agree hundred percent that for health, the DASH diet for low blood pressure or the Mediterranean diet for cardiovascular health have been shown at least have by far the best evidence for them. This is the question that's always asked is, which is the best diet to lose weight? And the answer is that food intake matters, right? So you probably can't see this very well, but it's a plot of all the many, many countries and how much calories are available per person. And there's an amazing linear relationship between how common obesity is in those countries and how much food is available per person. And of course, the US is way up at the top right corner. And you can see this sort of linear relationship. So food intake seems to matter. And there's many other ways you can show this. I just kind of like this one because it's international. So which diet is best? And the answer, as you might expect, is none. They're all uh, fairly equal. So here's just one study of many looking at low fat versus low carb, which is one of the biggest fights out there for diets. And you don't need to see all the details. They tried to figure out a genetic score to tell you which diet you should be on. And essentially, everybody did the same, whether they were in low fat or low carb. And no matter what their genes were, they did the same. And that's very typical of all of these studies, especially the longer the study is. This one was a year long. When they're really short, sometimes one will win. But when they're longer, it washes out. The other one I wanted to mention is time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. That's very popular right now, so I thought I'd give it a moment. And that is to say, if you eat whatever you want, but eat it only during eight hours every day, it ties to your circadian rhythm, to your patterns that are naturally ingrained, and therefore you'll lose weight even if you overeat. 
And the truth is that's not what happens. They basically end up eating basically the same as somebody on a calorie-restricted diet. And here's an example of a very successful diet trial from China where people lost quite a lot of weight. They lost 9, 10 kilos, which is, or 9, 10%, which is a lot for a diet trial. But you can see that they were equal. And what's interesting, that's the two curves on the right. And what's interesting is that the bottom part is what's called a waterfall plot, which shows every single person and how much weight they lost. And you can see there's huge variability. People who lost a lot of weight, people who didn't lose, some who even gained. And you can see that therefore it's individual and it kind of matters what works for you. And so from a weight loss perspective, it's really adherence. And that's been shown in many trials. It's what you can stick with is what matters, right? And so here the shark says, you know, I'm doing great until there's blood in the water, right? So it's what you can manage. So let's move on. So how to treat. So this is the drugs part, right? Which is what I was asked to talk about. And again, I'm not a pill pusher here, but I'm just going to tell you what's out there. But I think it's important to characterize obesity as a disease in order to think about treating it with medicines. And in that sense, it's the most prevalent disease there is, right? We're at 40% in the U.S. So it's complex. Complex diseases generally need multi-pronged approaches. You can't expect one thing or one medicine to cure or one lifestyle intervention. You need diet, you need exercise, you need stress control, sleep benefits, and different types of medicines. It's a chronic disease. I told you it's already, I already told you about the genetic component. And this is the hardest concept for people to sort of accept. They understand it, but they don't accept it. The idea that this is a lifelong condition. And so if I treat you with a drug that makes you lose weight, if I stop it, that will go away. People want to say, oh, I'm at the weight that I want. So why am I taking a medicine? I want to be off the medicine. And the reality is if I gave you a blood pressure medicine that dropped your blood pressure and now your blood pressure is normal, you would never say, oh, now I'm going to stop it because my blood pressure is normal. But with weight, that's how people feel and honestly how doctors feel as well. And so this is a big struggle. And finally, as I showed you with that waterfall plot, obesity is quite heterogeneous, right? As is diabetes, as is metabolic syndrome. All these things are very heterogeneous and therefore there are going to be things that work for you and things that don't. So again, how does this work? There's a sort of set point. That's a controversial concept, but I think it's useful in terms of thinking about what we want to achieve. There's all these things in the environment that are pushing that up, and those are things we definitely want to address, and I'm not for the purpose of this talk, but I certainly do when I see patients in clinic. And, and the meds and diet and exercise and all those things try to push that set point back down. And again, this illustrates the point that it's multi-pronged, right? There's many different arrows and many different approaches and that it's chronic in the sense that if you remove that green, the line would go back up. So you need to stay on these treatments or on these lifestyle modifications. And it's heterogeneous. Some of the arrows are small and some are big, meaning some things will work better than others. All right, let's get to the nitty gritty. So the anti-obesity meds, those are the FDA approved ones on the left, and I'm not going to rattle off all the names for you. A lot of them have been around a long time, and some of them are a little bit newer. The FDA gives us indications, so when we treat, basically for obesity, so BMI over 30 means obesity, so for any person with obesity, or overweight that has one of the conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, et cetera. So that's the indication. Now, it turns out there's actually a lot of other meds that are used not officially, but unofficially for this. And that's okay. They're safe. And they've found to have effects on body weight. And I want to mention a couple. So you notice that 
Phentermine and topiramate, those two that I just covered, I just put a, a marker on, those two are generic and have been around a long time. And those two together equal that one down below phentermine, which is a brand name, phentermine topiramate. And so that's useful that you can sort of mimic that generically, this brand name drug. And I'll talk a little bit about that one. Similarly, bupropion and naltrexone together form that one, another one that's now a brand name drug called Contrave. And then the last thing I want to say about this list is that all of these drugs on the right down here are all for diabetes. And again, I'm not, I'm giving short shrift to diabetes, but we've known for a while now that these meds can affect weight. Metformin is a very old diabetes drug, has a pretty modest effect. I'm going to talk a lot about the next set down there. The one I just want to mention just for a minute is the bottom ones that say gliflozin at the end. So that's a group of drugs in this new category called SGLT2. And this is my one diabetes moment to say that these are exciting drugs that we now use specifically for diabetes that have shown not only to benefit blood sugar, but actually to save lives, which is a very unusual finding for diabetes drugs. And in particular, to protect the heart in heart failure patients. And they're now being used even in heart failure in non-diabetics. And so that's a very exciting area. For body weight, they're pretty modest. So that's why I'm not really gonna talk much about them, but they are a great new addition to what we can do for patients. So let's talk about um, the meds that we have. So phentermine and topiramate have been around a long time and are, like I said, generic. But this company, this was during a time when it was really hard to get any kind of weight meds approved for use because a lot of them had shown harm and had been taken off the market. And so the companies decided to just take pre-existing meds that are already approved, combine them, and figure they'll get through the FDA, and that's what worked. It turns out this one's actually pretty effective. So they lose about 8 to 10%, which remember, on that chart, that's pretty good to reduce your risk for a lot of these diseases. And in fact, that's again compared against placebo. But you're not a placebo. You are you, right? So if you were on that drug, you might lose 10 to 12%. It fades a little toward the end of the two-year trial, but it's not bad. The advantages of these is that they can be mimicked generically, which makes them quite cheap. So actually, I work at Harborview, which is a county hospital that serves the underserved. And so I use these quite a lot where I need to give medicines at all. They can actually be effective for the outcomes that you care about, which is health. And the only main issue is they are limited by some of the side effects, which I'm not going to go into for the purpose of time. But we have to tread carefully in that area. The drugs that people get excited about started with this one, liraglutide or Victoza, as it's known for diabetes, or Saxenda as it's known for obesity. They're the same drug, just at a higher dose for obesity. And basically, these fall into a category called GLP-1 agonists. And I'll just take a second to tell you what that means. This is a bit small, but essentially GLP is a hormone that comes from your intestine that's natural hormone. And it does all these wonderful things. It helps you with your blood sugar. It helps you make insulin when you need it. It comes out in response to meals. So it helps you manage those nutrients. And by chance, it suppresses appetite. And amazingly, it also helps the heart and protects the heart. So it does all these wonderful things. And we're actually yet to see much harm associated with this since it's a natural hormone. The problem is the hormone disappears after a minute or two from your production. So the companies just said, well, let's make a long-acting form that can't be degraded. And it turned out to work really, really well. And so the first one, or in that early generation, or 
is this Victoza or Sexenda. And it has only a modest effect on weight. But again, probably not bad and good enough to have health benefits. It's effective. It's available for diabetics as Victoza, which helps with coverage. So one of the huge problems is that weight drugs are generally not covered by insurance. But this one, if the patient is diabetic, can be used, although it's a lower dose. It's an injectable, so that's kind of a bummer for a lot of people. They're not interested in injectables, but you'll see a lot of these drugs are because it's a peptide, and those would get chewed up in the stomach, so you have to inject. It has side effects, the big one being nausea and gastrointestinal side effects, but if you go slowly, generally people do okay, and that'll be common to this whole class. They're very costly if they're not covered, over $1,000 a month if they're not covered, so it's pretty prohibitive. But really, the new generation is what ushered in all the excitement, which is started with semaglutide, known as Ozempic in the diabetes world, or Wegovy in the obesity world. And what's amazing about this drug is with a single agent, it gets 15% weight loss. So that's the first that's ever come anywhere close to that kind of level. And that's pretty exciting. Again, so very effective. Now we're not effective, we're very effective. It's available as Ozempic, so again, for diabetics, we can get it covered. And just this month, actually, it's not yet published, but I'm going to let you in on a secret here. They're able to show for the first time ever in an obesity setting, not diabetes, not people already with heart disease, none of those things. This is a protective agent against heart disease in just the general population with obesity, which is an amazing thing because it means we might be able to get insurance companies to buy into this because it has a hard endpoint that matters. And it's a pretty strong effect. This is brand new and it'll be published, I think, next month. So I got a guy who's involved in the trial to actually tell me that. I saw him last week. So <laughs> it is injectable, but it's weekly. So it's not nearly as annoying as a daily. It has side effects, the same nausea, vomiting type thing, diarrhea. And cost, again, is outrageous if you're not covered for it. So one brief moment before we go to the new exciting things. And again, this is taking a while to load. The system doesn't want to load. So I'm just going to throw these up together. So you guys probably know, if you paid attention to the news about the fad that was kicked off by this drug, Ozempic, in its diabetes form. So there's TikTok, you can see there's like 340 million followers for people telling about their, their Ozempic journey. On the left is, you know, who deserves this because there's been shortages and they're, you know, they said, oh, Elon Musk, you look great. And he said, it, he popped into his own Twitter and said, oh, it's because of Wigovi. And then down on the right, there are people, there's the backlash, Wigovi is killing everybody and Ozempic is terrible. And then there's been a lot of supply issues, which is a legitimate problem that's continued. It's actually been two years now of it. So this is definitely an issue, and there's a lot of people just paying people on the side to do this and compounding pharmacies to make it on the fly. It, it's getting a little crazy. I don't have a solution to that. I think it's going to work itself out, but right now it's a bit of a mess. Now the most exciting ones. So terzepatide is the true new era. So now we're doing double, so two hormones that come from the gut, and you can't really see that there, but there are these two hormones. Now is the idea is to combine so all this is now combo therapy. Like I said, you need a multi-pronged, but you get it all in one. So this thing is crazy. 22% weight loss with a single agent over the course of about a year and a half, maybe 20 plus percent compared to placebo. I mean, that's amazing. So now we're talking extremely effective. 
It's available currently as a diabetes drug called Mounjaro, again with shortages because everybody wants it. It is injectable weekly. Same nausea, vomiting kind of side effects, but again, if you go slowly, most people do okay. And I will say that, of course, cost, and this one is not yet approved for obesity, but it's expected to be in December. Um, And what's amazing about this is the waterfall plot. Here is the placebo group, and you can see two-thirds of them lost weight. That's because they're in a clinical trial, so they're really watched and they're put on intensive lifestyle. But a third of people gained some weight over the course of that trial. All of the terzepatide people, minus 2%, lost weight. I mean, that's an incredible finding. So for all the heterogeneity, this thing seems to come past that and at least give you something. And the average was 20 25%. So nearly everyone lost weight. But there is still heterogeneity, and that's a very hot area of research is trying to figure out why do some people respond and others don't. And it's not compliance. There were very few dropouts. Now the last couple of slides on the new things. So these are coming fast and furious. So this is another set of hormones. It doesn't really matter. Everything's in combination with that original one. And here you'd say, well, this isn't as good, 17% versus 10%. Let me get to the punchline here. Very similar side effects. We don't know about cost. This is all early trials. It's not approved. But they got 17% at 20 weeks. That's like five months. These other trials were a year and a half to get 25%. They're already getting 17%. It's not even plateaued. That's why the Wigovi or the Ozempic is only at 10% because eventually it'll get to 15 But that's crazy. And the dropouts are not that high on these things. So these are really exciting. More exciting is this one. So this one was just published a couple months ago. This is an oral. So the problem with the other ones is they're peptides, right? So they're super expensive to make and they get degraded. This one is oral. So this is back to the same level as the Wigovi kind of level, because that's what this drug does. But what's cool about it is it's oral, so it could actually be quite cheap. And it's a small molecule, so it could be quite cheap to make. And so this could revolutionize access, which is the major problem right now with these drugs. It's not yet FDA approved. So again, these are still in trials, but they look good and they look pretty similar to everything. And finally, if two is good, three is better. It's America. You got to make more and more and more. So this is a triple, again, of these gut hormones that naturally occur. And now you're at 25% essentially with one agent within less than a year. And so this was just published last in September. And that's getting at the level of bariatric surgery, which I haven't even talked to you about, which gets you about 25, 30%. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com.
This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.